Hey, this is Brent Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Subray, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. And back in the studio, making his triumphant return, <laughs> is Mr. Blair Packham. <laughs> yes. To continue our conversation. How are you doing, man? I'm good. How are you, Brent? Awesome. Thank good. you. So, uh, last time you were here, we had a bunch of songs, and uh, I've got five more here that we didn't get to last time. Okay. 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 So today we will uh, we'll address those. I seem to recall my other grouping was uh, there were a lot of old people. Yeah, that's right. In that. there's like an old people theme. <laughs> yeah. I got into that too. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. is there a theme associated with this one? I well, I guess we'll, it'll reveal itself maybe it, later. You know, it will as we as we, as yeah. we dig into it. All right. <laughs> so the first song is uh, I love this band Squeeze. Oh. And the song is Is That Love? Yeah, Is That Love. Um, squeeze. Oh, there's so many Squeeze songs that I could name. I mean, I could name their biggest hit was Tempted. Tempted by the fruit of another. And That's I, right. I could could have easily named that one because even, like, I'm, I'm not concerned about if something was a big hit or not. It doesn't, like, some people will shy away from that. that you know, they'll want to come up with a more interesting choice. Yeah. But I just thought there's so many songs of theirs that move me. There's another one called Woman's World, which I just love. Yeah. Uh, but from the same album, Is That Love, uh, the album was called East Side Story. Yeah. And um, Is That Love, it, it, what what they were what squeeze were known for is is i think they called them kitchen sink dramas okay that's what some some critics called called them where where they describe this domestic scene between the person singing the song and his partner or whatever like it was the farthest thing from rock and roll you yeah. know from from like cliche rock and roll like let's party yeah. let's get wasted you know yeah. or whatever it, it was it was about um it was about like the little dramas between a you know, a couple. Mm -hmm. And the last line of, is that love is, uh, you made the bed, the finger points. Now is that, is that love? Mm. Um, or no, that now that is love. I think, I think that's the last line. Anyway, now again, there are probably people yelling at the, at the, their earphones <laughs> right now. It's not the last line, you idiot. Um, but it's, it, you know, it's, it's, it's asking what is love, and instead of saying, "Well, love is you know climbing the highest mountain, swimming the deepest ocean, uh, you know crossing the desert to you know to prove my love to you," it's like, "No, I'm making the bed," yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> and and that really appealed to me because it was real, yeah. it was real world stuff. I think when I heard that song, I'd already lived with my girlfriend mm -hmm. and lived for a year, and then moved out, and we broke up, and that was the end of that. But in the living with the girlfriend, you start to really appreciate those little domestic things that, that go on between couples and, and, you know, what love is. Yeah, love is passionate and love is dramatic and so forth, but it's also those little things. Yeah. Squeeze is interesting that way because they, they also, you know, do you remember Cool for Cats? Oh, yeah. When did yeah. that come out? Like late 70s? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 77, I think. Something. Yeah. Yeah, 78. And it was interesting because it was sung in a very heavy Cockney accent. Yeah, right? yeah. And for some reason, they never went back to that when they did, like, Pulling Muscles from a Shell. yeah. Yeah, you know, and everything else. Well, it was two. There are two different singers in the band. Uh, one of them didn't consider himself a singer at all. That's Chris Difford. Yep. And he wrote all the lyrics. Glenn Tilbrook sang most of the lead vocals and wrote all the music. Uh, and they lived together in a house at one point, And Glenn uh, would would wait for the lyrics to be delivered by Chris Difford, slid under his door. No. And he'd get the lyrics, and then he would write music for those lyrics, and. Uh, so you you occasionally heard Chris Difford sing lead, but mostly he sang 
uh, octave vocals to certain lines in the song. Okay. But in that, in the case of Cool for Cats, he sang uh, the lead and in his accent, in mm-hmm. well, in a stronger accent, and a put-on accent. Oh, yeah. Um, and he also sang on uh, Up, uh, no, he sang on parts of Up the Junction as well. Mm-hmm. But he, mm-hmm. but anyway, he he uh, he was the the octave, the lower octave voice in that band. And uh, yes. Tilbrook had that sort of Paul McCartney esque sort of sweet voice. Yeah. And then I think I think the producers and the record company probably thought, well, he's the guy with the sort of pop star voice. Let's yeah. use him. And he sang on Hourglass too, I think. Right? Yeah. yeah. Yes. As a result. And and. The irony, though, is that he didn't sing on their biggest hit, which is Tempted, the yes. song that I mentioned before. Yep. That was Paul Carrick, who was playing keyboards in the band at the time, and after that album left. So the guy who sang their biggest hit, he rejoined the band sometime in the early 90s for a tour, but then other than that, he wasn't in the band after that. Yeah. Um, so, I don't know. Great band, though. Fantastic oh, players. Love Squeeze. Yeah. Uh, next tune is Jules Shear and This Primal Fire. Do you know Jules Shear at all? I do not. Jules Shear had his biggest success with other people covering his material. Oh, okay. Um, he wasn't a songwriter to the stars. He was a songwriter who wrote for himself, but then people fell in love with those songs and, and did those songs. So arguably his biggest success would have been All Through the Night by Cindy Lauper. Okay. Uh, she... Um, she just fell in love with his song and then covered it, and he sang harmonies on the on that, and it was a big, big hit, and the album sold multiple millions, so he he did reasonably well from that. He also did a song, uh, wrote a song that the Bangles covered called "If She Knew What She Wants" ah, yeah. uh, in the '80s, and he started the MTV Unplugged series. No, it was his idea, really, and, and his first guests on the, I believe, on the first show or the second show were different in Tilbrook from Squeeze. Oh wow! Um, and and it was either the first, maybe the first show was Crowded House. He loved cr- those guys as well. Okay. So Crowded House were on the first show, and then I think Different and Tilburg were on the second show, and the fourth show I think was Don Henley. And Don, sure. Don Henley said to MTV, "I don't want to host. I don't want to. I just want the show to be like a concert." Okay. And so MTV said, "Sorry, Jules," and they actually kicked him off his own show. No. Yeah, the show uh-huh. he created. So that whole unplugged thing is because Jules Shear went to MTV and said, "Hey, I got this idea for showcasing songwriters." Really? Yeah. And so Jules Shear is a, like a pivotal guy in the music business. And that's how they thanked him. Yeah, and that's how they thanked him. Thanks, Don Henley. Um, <laughs> he Jules Shear produced and co-wrote the Jitters' second record. Mm. So the entire record are co-writes with Jules. Oh wow! And he produced it, and that record has never been reissued. Really, I'm seeing if I can acquire the rights to it actually from Universal Music, and I'm going to put it out myself. If, I think it should. Be. Yeah, yeah. He's a he's a fantastic songwriter. So this Primal Fire was very meaningful to me because I had just met the woman who became the mother of my child, who became my wife, and we're not together now. But I loved her so deeply and so much. And and her name's Arlene Bishop. She's a uh, singer songwriter. Okay. She's brilliant. Neither of us have any desire to be back together again, so I'm not... going to say Arlene Dickinson. No, no. It's like, what? <laughs> that would be, yeah, that would be weird, no. No, although I'm sure Arlene Dickinson is a wonderful person, but... Oh, I'm not sure, I don't know, who knows. But Arlene Bishop, I am certain, I'm 100% certain about, but if I, if I you know, rhapsodize about how great she is, it's not because I'm wishing we were together, you know, yeah. and nor is she, but she's great. She's a terrific singer-songwriter to this day. Mm-hmm. And this Primal Fire 
it seems to me, and I never talked to Jules Shear about this, but it seems to me it's about creativity. Okay. And it seemed to me that with Arlene and I, there was this primal connection, and it had to do with not just, you know, love and sex and the, the usual things in relationships, but also the fact that we made music together. Mm-hmm. And so the song speaks to me like that. It's about this primal thing that it's 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 like on the same plane as sex and love and yes. attraction yeah. but it's it's a different thing and not many couples it seems to me share that and so for me the song spoke to me about our relationship mm-hmm. and we used to sing it together we sang beautifully together i miss that so much i miss that more than anything else about our relationship and i suppose we could still sing together but wow um but we don't are you and, still in contact with her? oh yeah oh yeah because she's the mother of my child i see her all the time i sang on her her newest record actually oh. uh, she made an album uh, of uh, it was a small band with 30 voices from our shared community of musicians oh wow she had all kinds of great people singing on it and uh and we did a bunch of shows and it's a live album it's pretty great actually okay. yeah that's great yeah Wow. That's a great story. Thank you. (laughs) Now, will she be listening to this show? Probably not. But if she does, I don't think any of these things are secrets from from her. And she'll be happy that I plugged her album. (laughs) (laughs) I used to joke on stage, actually, because I played in her band and I was her band leader. And I used to say, if she was opening for me or vice versa, uh, I would say, uh, and and stick around for Arlene Bishop. uh, Or no, I would say, and here's a chance for me to plug my wife. And I can't tell you how much I love plugging my wife. But what I mean is you should stick around for Arlene Bishop. And, you know, and I used to enjoy making that joke. And That's great. Now I can't. Much to anymore. her chagrin. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, she has a great sense of humor, i got to say. She probably liked it. So. That's funny. It's not why we broke up. That's <laughs> Let's good. Let's put it that way. As far as I know. As far as you know. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so your next tune, Blair, is by Bob Dylan, and it's all over now, Baby Blue. Yeah, Bob Dylan. You may have heard of him. I've, yeah, the name sounds familiar, you know. Bob Dylan, uh, again, a million choices. Um, mm. I think the other one that I was thinking of is a, is a more recent Bob Dylan song. It's um, uh, To Make You Feel My Love. That w- was w- In every case, for all of these songs, there are probably another half dozen that I could have chosen from that artist. Yeah. Um, I love Bob Dylan's way with words, but what I really loved when I was younger was this sort of sense of menace. Yes. And it's all over now, Baby Blue has that. Yeah. Um, it's got a, there's a sense of, there's a darkness to it mm-hmm. um, that really appealed to me as a, as a teenager, I mean, or, or you know, as a young person, and uh, still, still does, actually. Yeah. yeah, there's a darkness to it, even though it's a guy with his guitar. There's, you know, the, the, there doesn't need to be like, you know, triple track guitars and you know, like, you know, you know yeah. what I mean? It doesn't have to sound like Metallica yes. to have this darkness or this metal, metal almost metal anger to it. Exactly. Um, and it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, I agree. I think that, you know, Bob Dylan, um, his greatest strength was the malevolence yeah. in his lyrics. You know, yeah. That darkness. As and the say. sneering quality. Yeah. Which... You know, you don't hear a lot of in like a lot of. I joke about my stuff that you know, me playing my earnest little folk songs. You know, yeah. I, they're not all like that at all. But but a lot of people who do the singer songwriter thing are very earnest. Mm-hmm. They're very like, "Hi everybody, yeah, you know, great to see you." You yeah. know, and and Dylan was like none of that. You know, it was a beautiful thing. 
Yeah. Yeah. And and again, that was it was interesting. There was a disparity between the way that his music sounded and, yeah. the, and the message that he was conveying. And you had to have a certain sensitivity to pick up on that. Otherwise, you would just if you're just listening to the surface, you'd hear his voice mm-hmm. and the way he delivered songs, you know, yeah. with his exaggerated pronunciation of things and so forth and and you might be put off by that. My father used to you know, do a Bob Dylan impression all the time, and <laughs> and it was just making fun of you, you, Bob Dylan, and so forth. Just like yeah. you know, after all, I was like, okay, Dad, relax. You know, <laughs> you know, there's more to it than that. So <laughs> irritating. <laughs> Sorry, Dad. Yeah. Did your uh, dad ever imitate Bob Marley? He never did. But the day Bob Marley died, um, my dad uh, and I loved Bob Marley and saw. Bob Marley and the Whalers at Convocation Hall in Toronto. Yep. And I was very sad when Bob Marley died in whenever it was, 81 or whatever year it was. Yep. And my dad made a joke about, um, Bob, was that, uh, you know, is that from a Christmas carol? Is that who you mean? He didn't know who Bob Marley was. And he, oh. so, he, so he made a joke that it was, it was, it was actually Marley's ghost, you know, now we're going to see Marley. And it was a lame joke and it was, it was a stupid reference and, and it, you know, and, but it was a dad thing. And I, yeah. I find myself saying similar things, I'm sure to my son all the time. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, I don't hold it against my dad in other words, <laughs> but it was like, dad, this is something that means something to me, you know? Okay. Make fun of it if you want to, yeah. you know? So that is uh, your next tune. That was the reason why I said that, actually, because your next tune is War by Bob Marley. Okay, so when I saw Bob Marley sing War yeah. in 1977, it was incredibly moving because, first of all, it was in a small venue. Hold, held holds 1,000 people. Most of those people, like most of Toronto's Jamaican community, was out to see Bob Marley. So there weren't that many white faces in the audience. Okay. Hearing this song for the first time was very moving because in that context it was sort of beginning and really the beginnings of i don't know how woke i am you know to use a a contemporary term but like i i found it very moving as as a like a a privileged white kid to be sitting in this audience Mm -hmm. and and watching an audience enjoy and i was enjoying him immensely but the the ecstasy in this audience watching them enjoy someone from the islands you know from the west indies where 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 he uh, meant so much to them you know right. and and here they are in canada a pretty foreign place compared to you know uh the caribbean the, the you know and and uh, i'm getting my geography mixed up a, a bit the, uh, but compared to jamaica yeah, yeah, and this yeah. was in, this was in the spring but it was still a little chilly you know mm-hmm. and just to see the audience react not just to that one song but to all of the songs when he sang no woman no cry and he and he and he says i do you remember when we used to sit in the government yard in trench town you know and this sigh went through the audience like you know really? just like whoa like you had the the palpable feeling that they remembered you know they knew exactly what he was talking about and and um like bob marley at that point wasn't the sort of uh stoner cliche that he became in pop culture where you know you know teenagers who are into weed will put up a bob marley poster in their bedroom or whatever it wasn't that thing yet you know he was still exotic and he was still really unique and different and this song, I'm going on really long, a long time about this song, but this song is the text from a speech from the Emperor Haile Selassie, who, who, who was, to Rastafarians, he was God. He was the, the new Messiah, okay. right? Uh, 
and I've talked to a, a Rasta recently, and and she said she said no, he is the Messiah. He remains the Messiah. Wow. And I was like, oh, of course. You know, I mean, for Rastas, this was a. Uh, 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 the the he, he was the, uh, an, the Ethiopian uh, figure who who came to represent the coming of the second coming of God, okay. and he gave a speech. I'm not sure where it was. I'm not sure the circumstances of it. But Marley just took the words from the speech and basically recited them over top of this reggae groove. Okay, and made it into a song. Wow, and it's incredibly powerful. Until the philosophy that holds one man superior and another inferior is finally and permanently discredited and abandoned, there will be war. Wow. And it's a declaration of there will be war because until you start treating us, you know, meaning people of color, mm-hmm. equal to you and, 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 and until you, you know, stop with your apartheid and so forth, there will be war. I mean, in that room at that time, this was, this was incredibly powerful. Yeah, and uh, and it remains incredibly powerful to me. I mean, obviously, I could recite more of it. By the way, I like I remember it. You know, um, but interestingly, in the early '90s, this is this was the song that Sinead O'Connor got kicked off of Saturday Night Live for by ripping up the picture, of the ripping pope, up the picture of the Pope. But she was that was the song she yeah. was doing. Yeah. And uh, it's an incredibly powerful song, and yet it's not a standard, typical song. He, Marley didn't try and come up with a chorus for it. Mm-hmm. You know, war, war, war is going to be whatever it is. You know, he yeah. wasn't. He didn't do anything that would that would diminish it in any way. Yeah, he was very uh, respectful. respectful to you know of the text. Yeah. And uh, and again, in that moment, but also hearing it on records for you know forever after, I, it it I find it a very moving song. Wow. Marley had the stage presence, and I'm not—I don't think I'm exaggerating in my memory at all. I—I I, I really felt this at the time. He had the stage presence. He could have been the Beatles, uh, and the Beatles to me are the ultimate, you know. Yeah, yeah. So he could have been like, in terms of stage presence, he could have been Mick Jagger. He could have been—I mean, clearly this guy was was a complete and utter star. Yeah. And I don't mean that in, in the superficial way. I mean in the way of, of being a leader of, of other humans. An influencer. An influencer, yeah. yeah. It was very, very powerful. And, and uh, not just those songs, but, you know, the whole night. It was, oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. It was uh, incredible. And, and I think that's fantastic that you're talking about this. Because as you say, you know, pop culture, unfortunately, paints Bob Marley as a stoner. You know, unless you really kind of dig into it. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, that's the superficial, right? And I mean, I think of other aspects of the world mm-hmm. of which I have a superficial knowledge and I have a tendency to diminish those things. Like, for instance, you know, to pick a, a weird example, wine. Mm-hmm. I have I have little to no knowledge of what a good wine is. Mm-hmm. So I make fun of the idea. I hold the glass up to my nose and I talk about the you know the tannins yes and and i make fun of the whatever terminology that i might recall from having seen it on tv yeah Yeah. it's got a strong finish and it's got notes of excrement and you know or whatever (laughs) you know whatever yeah Yeah. uh, uh, and and so forth but (laughs) but really there are lots of people for whom that is meaningful and you know for me make making fun of it is you know i mean you can't be po-faced about all this stuff you can't you know like not have a sense of humor but when people make fun of or diminish marley to this this figure of uh uh you know let's all get high and so forth that's there's 
that's part of it. Yeah. But it's and not it, the whole picture. Well, I think people often do that almost as a, a defense mechanism, right? They, uh, they, to, they to hide their ignorance or, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm like that with sports, you know. <laughs> no, I really am, you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, you mentioned before one of your other guests, Dave Bedini yeah. from Rio Statics, um, or Stephen Stanley, another past guest of yours, mm -hmm. uh, big sports fans, specifically hockey, but sports, yeah. you know, I'm not that guy. And mm -hmm. for me, when I was, you know, young, you kind of had to make a decision. So I made a decision. It was going to be music. I mean, it was never any contest for me. Yeah. But I only in meeting Bedini later. Yeah. I met him in 1980, 80, 81, something like that. Okay. Um, and um, also the, the Cash brothers, Andrew Cash and yeah. Peter Cash and uh, lots of other musicians, the Blue Rodeo guys. Yeah. I realized, oh, my God, you can like hockey, too. <laughs> Oh, I honestly sure. didn't know. Them, a lot of them play very well. Yeah, actually. yeah, they're good players. Good yeah, player. yeah. But uh, to me, it's like it's like nothing that I understand. Mm. You know. Can I ask you now about what was that scene like? You know, you named a lot of my favorite musicians. There. Yeah, yeah. So what was that like? Because you guys were all kind of moving in the same circles, right? Yeah, there was a little competition. It wasn't as it was more competitive, I think, then than it is now. Mm -hmm. I think bands help each other out more now. Okay. Um. There was, yeah, there was competition. I remember feeling um, jealous of Blue Rodeo's success because uh, the Jitters album came out first. Yeah. And we had a solid run on the radio with that first album. Like we were, and we sold almost 40,000 copies of, of that record. And the Blue Rodeo, oh no, the Blue Rodeo record came out first and it kind of stiffed, the first one, whatever it was called. Uh, Did it really? Yeah, it, at, at first. Try it was their the first single, right? No, it was, I believe it was their third single. Was it? Yeah, I'm pretty sure because I remember thinking it came out. It's, it seems to me it came out for some reason the the, the number seven months comes to my mind okay. that it came out long before our record. And so when our record came out and then got all over the radio, I was like, <laughs> Blue Rodeo, yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> you know, nothing against those guys personally at all. And and I did know them and we did see each other and we, we played shows together and mm -hmm. stuff like that. But then when Try exploded, I remember being quite envious yeah you know and then it really exploded and of course they haven't looked back so it was like 87 yeah. I so i had yeah i had to kind of put away those feelings you know yeah. and stuff them down and <laughs> with alcohol and food you know <laughs> but uh the real statics uh, i met dave bedini and the rest of those guys uh when they recorded at uh comfort sound where i was working as a recording engineer okay. i worked at, at a recording studio for five years and uh, met all kinds of great people mm -hmm. and the the rios uh did their first demos there that was before martin tielli joined the band yeah and uh there was a sort of a grudging kind of respect i think i don't think it was terribly friendly we decided to do some shows together at the cabana room where the jitters would open one week mm -hmm. it was a residency at the cabana room which is the spadina hotel at king and spadina okay. and um we we would open one show and then the next week they would open the show and and we did a bunch of those and i remember the the vibe i'm always a i'm, a, I'm sort of a puppy dog i'm like hey how's it going everybody you know yeah. and so forth and they were much cooler than that and uh, they were sort of like oh hi hi oh, really? nice to see you yeah and i and i to this day i don't know if it was standoffishness mm. or shyness yeah I don't know, but I was very impressed with their, uh, like, seeing bands like that made me realize that songs don't have to just be about boy-girl stuff, yeah, and that they could be, uh, uh, take chances uh, structurally and uh, 
melodically. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it was it was an eye opener to see bands like the Rios up close, and they certainly did that. Yeah, 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 definitely. Interesting. Yeah. When did you meet Stanley? Um, not that long ago, maybe two years ago. Oh, yeah. So not during most of the low days. No, no. Oh, really? At that point, I was writing a lot of TV music, and I wasn't really going out to see bands. I go out to see way more music now. Yep. But my son was in. Well, no, with their heyday would be when it was it the nineties, I guess, uh, through I to the say like ninety, ninety one, ninety two. You're right, right. Yeah. So, no, I was I was just starting to write TV music at that point, okay. and I was in my new relationship with Arlene Bishop, and we had our our little domestic scene and I don't know I didn't really see them I never really mm. I only met him a couple of years ago I think I met Ron Hawkins yeah. maybe five or six years ago but Stephen and I have become fast friends I mean yeah. I'm really enjoying his his songwriting is so great I'll tell you man that I've been promoting that record everywhere just yeah. because I love it so Jimmy much. and the Moon yeah, yeah. The, so good such a great record and, and I've said this to him uh, he uh He's able to evoke in just a few lines with the sound of his voice, but also the words that he's written, mm -hmm. this nostalgic feeling in me for moments in time that, that I wasn't there for. Yeah. And how can I be nostalgic for something I never even witnessed? But he's he's conveying his own feelings in such a powerful way yeah. that uh, from from this these descriptions of these places, like for instance, uh, he t has his song, um, The Troubadour, Say yes. Goodbye to the Troubadour. Yeah. Um, about a place in the junction. I, I've never been to the Troubadour, and I'm, I, I imagine it's closed now because that's what the song's about. Yep. But I've never been there, and yet I miss it. Yeah. I just think he's a fantastic writer. Yeah. Yeah. I always said about that record, and I've said this to him, that, you know, it's, it's I think this is where that comes from. There's this essence of Canadiana yeah. in, involved in that music, and you hear that with certain bands. You hear yeah. that, you heard that a little bit with Sky Diggers. Like, yes. you just, when you listen to it, it just has that ethos. Yeah. Right. But the best thing about his record, Jimmy and the Moon, is that it doesn't let that Canadiana limit it in, a, in any way. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, I think that it can be limiting. And uh, it's sort of the it's the plaid jacket brigade thing that I never <laughs> was really into. But there's a bit of that. Yeah. And yet, as you say, it doesn't limit it. It it, it can transcend that. I think I personally think it's in the words. I think. I think his lyrics are more ambitious than some of those other artists. Not not specifically the Sky Diggers, who I think are great, but his words are more vivid, I, th I find, than some some of the other flannel jacket people. I, agree. <laughs> I absolutely agree. Yeah, he's gonna have to start paying me because I'm pumping that album like crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. Somebody should these these days. You know, when you don't really sell music, you like it's hard. Like. It's another reason why I pressed CDs was because I, it's something tangible that I could actually, you know, give away or sell. Yes. And uh, that was meaningful to me. But um, I sort of trade in praise these days because, you know, like, you worked on that. I worked on this thing for three years. Yeah. So, so yeah. like, you know, and Stephen Stanley worked on his, I'm sure, for a long time. So, you know, if you like something, folks, anybody listening. Speak up. If you, and you know the artist, tell them. Yes. You know, it's it's really meaningful in a way that I think it wasn't as much before. No, I I think it's much more meaningful now. Yeah. I agree. You yeah. need to speak up when you really like something. And I, I, I told Stanley that, too. I mean, he, he said, thank you for writing a review of this record. Right. right. And I said, it's my pleasure yeah. because I love this record. Oh, that's so good. You know, that's and sometimes so people will, will, will send notes to me saying, hey, I've got this album. Uh, I'm from Sudbury and I want you to hear this. You know, and I'll say, you run the risk. <laughs> 
if I don't like this, yeah, that the yeah. review's not going to be good. Yeah. Right? So... Yeah, it seems like a lot of the bloggers these days, if they don't like something, they just won't write anything about it at all, which I think is is probably good in a way, but yeah, I don't know. I you know, I I kind of t- I don't think you can I don't think any good can come of of issuing a bad review. Like I won't I won't put a bad review up for the sake of, you know, putting a review up. I yeah. I just as soon say, you know what, it's, it's just not my thing and I'm not going to make light of it. You know what's happened to me uh uh not to me directly, one did, uh but on on Facebook, mm-hmm. there are some people who have posted bad reviews of the jitters my band from the 80s mm-hmm. so these reviews are from the 80s really and they're well one of them was written by dave bedini and <laughs> he actually he actually it was a kind of a backhanded compliment in fact because he was describing this show that we did with a bunch of other bands and he described the other bands as living in led zeppelin land <laughs> and you know sort of uh, you know having the zeppelin hair and being the hard rock guys yeah. and he said you know you know an antidote to this was, was the jitters who with their in the old days, I would have memorized a bad review, but it was a backhanded compliment. He he said we weren't part of that same group. Mm-hmm. We, you know, he wasn't a huge fan of ours. He was indicating, yep. but at least we weren't part of that kind of mm-hmm. thing. And I had to I had to wonder why is the guy posting not 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 Bedini by the way another person a third party person? posted it on Facebook and I thought yeah. why why are you, why do I have to relive my bad press you know yeah. and and then. Then somebody else posted a bad review of of Larry Gowan. Gowan. Yeah. I was never the biggest Gowan fan, mm-hmm. but I sort of think like, why does Larry Gowan? And he he like he, what, what is it? They uh, tagged Larry Gowan in the review. So that means that next time Larry Gowan goes to Facebook, he's got to read this review at least enough of it to realize I don't want to read this. Why do I want to read this in 2018? You know, a review. Yeah. In this case, it was from 1978. Oh, it's, it's, you it's know barely relevant. He, it's, and why, And I guess people think that it's still not going to sting you or something, but it does. Absolutely, yeah. it does. I mean, the one from Bedini, I didn't mind because again, I could see that he meant it as a as a compliment without actually. He didn't want to go overboard, you yeah. know. Yeah. Because you know, then he he might be uncool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I I don't understand why people do that stuff. I mean, seventy five percent of the internet's a toilet, really, for yeah for that sort of behavior. Yeah. If you want to get your feelings hurt. Then you know, read a review of your book or your music or whatever on yeah. uh, you know, people have opinions about you know. What, here's something that frustrates me about Facebook. If I posted any one, if I posted this list of songs that we're talking about, yeah. uh, and said that they really moved me, and these you know, and then I had a great time talking to you and so forth. And here are the songs I talked about. There will be people among my friends mm-hmm. who will make a point of telling me why I'm wrong about this song or that song. <laughs> And I don't know why. Like, just keep it to yourself. Yeah. It just, uh, you know, that's their own deal. I, I, my skin's pretty thick when it comes to stuff like that. Good I for just, you. you. I just, wish I could say that. Hey, you have to. I yeah. mean, in our line of work, a little bit different, but I mean, yeah. Um, you know, you, you've got to, you've got to have thick skin. Yeah. There's a lot yeah. of uh, knuckleheads out there. Someday I will develop thick skin. <laughs> Hmm. All right, my friend, you've got one song left here, and All right. it is a gem. It's by the Beatles, and it's called Hey Bulldog. Okay. I love Hey Bulldog for a bunch of reasons mm-hmm. that have nothing to do with what I learned about the song when I was older. When I was younger, I loved the riff. I love that. I love the attitude in the singing. Mm-hmm. 
there's a toughness to it. There's a great guitar riff. There's it's it's like hard rock, but it's still really melodic. Yep. I love the incomprehensibility of the lyrics, like the fact that I couldn't figure out what the hell they were talking yeah. about. And then when I was older, I loved that they wrote, like Lennon mostly wrote it, and it was a challenge from McCartney, and they were always challenging each other. Mm -hmm. And it was a challenge to, to write a, and record a song in a day, and which they did fairly often but you know as as things moved along things got slower for them and yeah. and so they they you know they and they'd work on things for 3 4 days you know a week at a time or whatever and in this case they did it really fast it sounds like they did it fast in that it's got this excitement and it's got this energy to it yeah. uh and i and i like cuz it's enigmatic I, I i i don't always want my songs telling me what they're about mm -hmm. so um no i i like when lyrics are uh, are interpretable in yeah. that way Right? Yeah, and I thought the, the tragically hip's a great example oh, of that. Yeah, you know, really. That's choose your own adventure stuff. You, yeah. you can listen to those, and they could mean ten different things. Yeah, and that's up to you to interpret. Yep. Yeah, yeah. and you got to admire uh, somebody like Gord Downey. Uh, well, somebody like him. There's nobody like him, I don't think. But a person who can write lyrics like that and then sing them with such passion and conviction, oh, yeah. and yet I'm not always can not always convinced that he knew what he was singing about. I don't think he did. Because because I think he uh, um, more than most songwriters gave himself over to the to the muse, you know, mm -hmm. to the, mm -hmm. the the thing just flowing through you. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I admire songwriters like that. I I often overthink things, I feel anyway. Yeah. And I and I fight to try and not do that and I felt that he was sort of at you know, he was he was the prime example of a guy who could sing what to one person might sound like utter nonsense, but to somebody else might sound completely meaningful. Exactly. And and uh, and the lyrics had great depth to them as a result. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And that's the power of music. Yeah, baby. <laughs> and that is a great way to end off here, sir. You have done an excellent job. Oh, thank, thank you so you. much. It's so much fun talking about songs that you love. Isn't it great? Yeah. Yeah. Man, what a great idea. That's what it's all about. Thank you. And thank you for coming. I appreciate it. My pleasure. All right. This has been No Sleep Till Sudbury with Brent Jensen and my very special guest, Mr. Blair Packham. Till next time, folks, take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide.